From Buffalo, Toronto, Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next, Producer Picks. Highlights of important interviews from our daily discussion on race, segregation, education, and the issues that spring from the top shootings on May 14th. Today, you might have seen Paul Perez around in the community. I've been on billboards. I'm in the clean sweeps. I'm going door to door. I'm around. But have you heard his message? Keep believing in yourself. Anything is possible when you believe in yourself. Coming up, a young entrepreneur speaks on youth engagement, finances, discipline, and more. Also today, an identity story from Francisco Vasquez. I like to think about it as having lived in between the culture of my roots, uh, the Mexican culture, and uh, culture of whiteness. And a deep look at what community benefit agreements would look like. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for being with us today. We begin with Andrea O'Sullivan from the Partnership for the Public Good and talks about what a community benefits agreement could look like. Our stadium negotiations here in Erie County have been treated pretty secretly. Even yourself, I think, as a journalist can see, it hasn't been very transparent. Um, when I talk to folks in the news, they don't know any more than we do about the deal and what's being discussed. Um, that's Unusual, I would say many other cities and communities when they're negotiating stadiums have a more open process, um, particularly what they have is when they are negotiating community benefits or what's called in this field community benefits agreements. They have a broad negotiating table. They have folks from labor, from community groups, maybe from education, from food justice, from all these good issues you've been covering on Buffalo What's Next. They set the negotiating table with representatives. But if it's a negotiation... Don't they have the right to do it behind closed doors? They absolutely do um, have the right. That's what they're doing. And, and you know, many of our partners would say, basically, you're negotiating a development deal with some community reinvestment in it. Um, you really can't have a community benefits agreement uh, without community members at the table. In fact, community benefits agreements first emerged as a tool um, a few decades ago in response to deals negotiated in this way. Um, you know, communities had the experience of all of a sudden officials would come out and announce, boom, there's going to be a new hospital in your neighborhood or surprise, there's going to be a stadium here. Um, and communities said, wait a minute, we didn't even know about this. We would have liked to weigh in. How will this affect everything from our parking to our schools, you know, the neighborhood, the character of the neighborhood. So these agreements emerged really as a way for community members to have a seat. Now, they don't have to have a seat in every day of the negotiations and every issue. You can have a side table for community benefits agreements where you consult and meet with all these representatives and find out for our public dollars, for our public investment, what do community members want to see? But why do we need this kind of agreement? You just spoke of, say, traffic. Mm. That's more or less specific to Orchard Park because the new stadium is going to be roughly in the same spot as the old stadium. Environmental Review will take care of traffic mitigation in and around Orchard Park. Why do we need a community benefits agreement 
that will affect things like uh, food equity on the east side? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. And over the years, a lot of these stadiums and arenas are built in more urban neighborhoods. And of course, that was also a huge conversation about the new stadium. Um, And so to your point, you do see, for example, in 2008, the Pittsburgh Penguins owners, when they received uh, $250 million in public subsidies, they committed to funding a new locally owned grocery store in that neighborhood, a community center in that neighborhood. Um, so I want to be upfront that that has been a question. If the stadium's in Orchard Park, what's Why the big deal for Buffalo? Exactly. I think the reason we're talking about it is that this is the largest handout of public dollars in the history of American sports, a $1 billion subsidy, $850 million up front, um, the rest over the first 30 years of the stadium. That's an enormous uh, subsidy for this project. So really that affects all of us. Uh, we've done a little bit of math that, you know, that comes down to about $1,100 per resident of Erie County or $2,500 per household in Erie County contributing to the new stadium. So literally we are all investors in this project. Uh, We're also living in a time post-COVID where we know the huge needs that we have. We're hearing that every day on this program. Um, It's also becoming a trend in community benefits agreements to not only invest around the stadium, um, you know, labor deals, who gets hired, what kind of jobs are at the stadium, but to really cast a broader net for these benefits. We're all contributing public dollars into this. Um, The benefits should reach beyond the immediate area of the stadium. So this isn't necessarily to mitigate anything that the stadium is causing. This is, to your mind, just a way to get return on the investment of state dollars. I think, you know, if this was a billion dollar private investment, those investors would sure be getting a return on their investment and a profit sharing agreement. That would all be very clear up front for a billion dollars in private investment. And we believe that public dollars should be treated the same way. But we're getting a stadium and we're keeping a team that everybody loves here. That is true. That That's is true. true. And That's not enough. Well, that happens everywhere. And that okay. threat to leave also happens everywhere yeah. that a new stadium is yeah. built. Um, you know, what we can do with a billion dollars in public money is a major conversation to have. So really, I think what we and our partners are saying is let's have that conversation. Um, corporate owners around the country are really making the uh, the trend or recognizing for their team to thrive. The community around it has to thrive as well. Um, we are seeing, again, the largest subsidy in the history of American sports in what is a very high poverty region to host a professional team. Um, so really that discussion of um, what are the needs in the region? What do we see a, a lot of lifelong Bills fans still grappling with in terms of poverty and concentrated racialized poverty in our region? These are all things that can be addressed um, with reinvestment. How is it that the stadium becomes the pass-through. If the stadium costs legitimately $850 million to build mm-hmm. and the state and the county is kicking in $850 million, and you need that for girders and you need that for a stadium, where does the rest of the money come from, I guess? Do the bills kick in more? Does the county kick in more? If I'm going to fund, hypothetically, a supermarket on the east side and that 850 is already for girders and cement over here, where does the money for the supermarket come yeah, from? Yeah, community benefits money typically comes from the corporation. So it would not be more public money. It would, again, be the idea of 
for public subsidies, we should see public benefit. Um, yes, we get the but stadium. Have, yes, we get the bills. But a lot of studies have shown there's not a lot of economic economic benefit for that. That's even what we're hearing from Orchard Park, from yeah. their council members. Um, in fact, it's cost the money to have extra police around the stadium on game days. So that's the challenge here, right? When we are talking about um, other big development projects, hospitals, factories, there are many jobs. There are daily jobs. Um, a challenge that I've learned in researching stadiums and arenas, which was certainly not my field before all this came <laughs> up, um, is that football stadiums are even the hardest to get local economic benefit from because there's really so few games a year, right? Basketball right, right. games, hockey games, baseball stadiums. You get much more return in terms of jobs, wages, immediate economic benefit. With a handful of home bills games a year, you don't get that. Um, you don't get that same return. So that's why really advocates across the country have made this practice of for our public money, we want to see economic benefit, not only having a team. But if the deal that the team and the state and the county reach said this facility needs $850 million, uh, they're not going to build a stadium for 830 and say, guess what? I just found another 20 for you, Andrea. No, absolutely. That money would come over the first. We're not looking for that as a down payment on day one. That comes out of the Pagula's profits over the first 30 ah, years of having the stadium. Okay. So that's the question, too, right? Um, I don't have those numbers in front of me, but obviously Pagula Sports and Entertainment makes a pretty penny every year off of the Buffalo Bills. Um, and that's where we want to see, you know, they're going to have a new stadium to play in. They will stay here for that. Um, they'll make a lot of money off of those games every year. And that's where the community should have some return on our investment to make that possible. And is it, if there is a need for a community benefit agreement, Everybody pretty much agrees with what you just said. Is that correct? Um, I am not privy to the table to know if everybody does, but certainly publicly, a chairwoman of the county legislature, April Baskin, has taken a very strong stance for a community benefits agreement. Mark Pollenkars, um, in interviews, has said there will be a community benefits component of the deal. Um, so really, I think I'm sure what they're discussing is what what will those benefits be? What amount will it be? Over um, how long, what the payments look like, that's that sort right. of thing. That's right, that's okay. right. It is interesting to note that tonight the town of Hamburg is taking a vote on a resolution. Resolved that the board of the town of Hamburg believes a strong community benefits agreement will include requirements for investment and support, and it starts to list some of the things they would like to see in the agreement. Youth enrichment activities, access to jobs, entrepreneurial opportunities at the stadium, improved public transportation, and inclusive, and you, you talked about this at the top of the program, and an inclusive and transparent public process for oversight of the benefits agreement. That's on the agenda for the Town of Hamburg Board tonight. Earlier this year, uh, on October 1st, the same resolution was approved in Amherst, resolved that they want... Um, enrichment activities, access to jobs, entrepreneurial opportunities, improved public transportation, and a transparent public process. Cheektowaga, in the past couple of weeks, uh, passed the exact same resolution. Public officials are behind this, I would think, because they want some of the largesse. But Amherst, Hamburg, Cheektowaga are not the supermarket on the east side. Mm. 
I believe Orchard Park passed it as well last week. So we oh, are okay. seeing this we'll trend okay. of municipalities. And, you know, I think that that's fair. It, this is a countywide issue. I would say it's a statewide issue. All taxpayers in New York State are contributing to this stadium. So we should see benefits Yes, um, targeted to neighborhoods on the east side that have been strategically disinvested for years. The original home of the Buffalo Bills on Jefferson, you know, seeing many institutions, including the Bills, leave that neighborhood. Um, Seeing, of course, during COVID and since the May 14th massacre on Jefferson, we have seen those needs highlighted. That should be addressed through this, which is the largest economic development deal for our county in a long time. From your perspective, what has to be in this agreement? We've been discussing uh, with members of our partnership for almost a year, I would say, what they would like to see um, in the stadium deal. And we've held workshops around it and some community conversations. Um, and first of all, what we hear, um, which just a couple of the most recent community benefits agreements around the country have done, um, is a big investment fund on the top that would make annual grants during the first 30-year stadium lease. Um, So some partners have called for a $100 million community investment fund. um, And this would have a community oversight board that would help to determine where does that funding go each year during the 30-year lease. And that's something that's in place in other places that have these agreements? Yes. And most recently, a really interesting deal um, is the city of Los Angeles in 2020 approved the Clippers new arena project. That was a $1.3 billion arena project, so a similar size uh, deal as the stadium here. But what's quite fascinating is those corporate owners did not seek or receive any public subsidy. So there was no public money in that deal. And they gave a benefits agreement they anyway. They did anyway. So they, in exchange for simply the planning approval, the agreement from the municipality to let that deal, that project happen, um, they committed to $100 million in community benefits. That included some emergency support for residents impacted by COVID-19. It was in 2020. So they're committing yeah, to actually yeah. just financial assistance to individual residents affected by emergency. Um, $6 million for the public library, $8 million for college scholarships, and then a set of grants to local housing nonprofits as well. So again, to my point earlier, you start to see in these deals 10 years ago, it was mostly about the project labor agreement. Who got yeah. to build the stadium? Who gets to work at the stadium? How much will those wages be? But now in recent deals, we see, again, um, paying for libraries, parks, housing assistance. So this really broader set of benefits and this recognition that these stadiums and arenas can only exist because of the community they're in, because of the fans buying tickets and going, so that you should have this um, exchange of reinvestment as well. So upfront, that's a big one, is to see a community investment fund. Um, You mentioned the municipal resolutions are calling for public transit improvements. That's been a big one among our partners as well. Buffalo Transit Riders United and others have been in these conversations um, and announcements over the last year too. That's first of all, better transit to and from the stadium so that more folks can access jobs and entertainment at the stadium who don't have a car, Um, but also system-wide improvements to public transit in Erie County, which we all know is a major issue um, and an economic one because so many of our jobs are not accessible by public transit these days. Are these projects really large ones? Would we be talking about um, a hypothetical 
light rail spur to the stadium or just better, more Metro buses? I think better buses gets the job done. Um, I think many of our partners are happy with better buses. I think the Metro rail piece um, would be a huge project to resource. Okay. Yeah, so that's mostly what I'm hearing is better bus service there and then improvements across the system. Um, direct investment, as you mentioned, in youth sports and recreation. Um, that feels very tied to this. We're investing so much in professional sports. Let's make sure the young people across Erie County are also well-funded for sports and recreation. What would that look like? Subsidy of high school programs, town parks? How how do you see that playing out? Yeah, we've talked to little, little league coaches over the last year about what they need, boys and girls clubs. So really kind of after school, um, town and village recreation. And then in Buffalo as well, certainly a need for... Um, in schools and out of schools, a lot more sports, community center, recreation opportunities as well. Jobs and economic development. Is that generically in the big pot of money just for investment? Or would you like to see a specific line item, as it were? Um, uh, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, that part is really close into um, the stadium as well. What jobs are there? One really interesting thing that we learned um, looking into all this is when you go to buy a hot dog and a and a Coke at the Bills game, very often you're being served by a volunteer. Um, and so that's a whole dynamic as well. Should those be volunteer positions? Should we be giving jobs for those? But the bigger picture too is support for small businesses and entrepreneurs around the county. Um, if we have $1 billion to support a multi-billion dollar owned corporation, hopefully we've got a little bit of money for more support for jobs, small businesses. Um, and then to your point earlier about the need for inclusive oversight of the deal. You know, there's other things folks want to see as well. Support for health equity, many of the issues that were highlighted over the last couple of years. So investment in affordable housing, fresh food access, some of that could come out of that 30-year fund and be ongoing uh, grant-making process. Um, but in other communities we see coming out of stadium negotiations, they will often have a community reinvestment committee. Um, so we have had, as we said, quite a secret and not transparent process going in, but we can change that now as we emerge from it and have a committee which would uh, oversee the governance, monitor that this money actually gets out, gets implemented, that these commitments are followed over the next 30 years. And oversight, I think, would be crucial because I can sit here now and predict needs 25 years down the road. No one saw COVID coming. So an oversight group could say, you know, we initially thought the needs of the community were X, but now as we're getting 10, 15 years in, we're noticing Y and Z here. That's how that would work? That's right. That's right. Um, to, to really, as you're saying, kind of be mapping what our current needs each year. Um, you know, sometimes those groups continue to have meetings with the corporate owners to update what has the impact of the projects been um, and to make sure that reinvestment money is flowing back to the community. This is Buffalo What's Next, producer picks, highlights of important and sometimes really lively interviews from WBFO's daily discussion on race, education, and related issues. Are you ready now for Jay Moran and Paul Perez? Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Peace. How y'all doing? <laughs> We're doing okay. Paul is involved in a lot of different things. He says he's the site director for 
home headquarters, but uh, that's his nine to five, as he tells me. But he is involved in a couple of other things, a lot of it having to do with real estate, uh, better living interests, and also better living uh, logistics, too, correct, as correct. well. So we want to get into all those things. But I think, Paul, one of the things that, that really strikes us about your experience and your thoughts is just about when it comes to general generational wealth and the lack thereof when it comes to a lot of black people. Mm-hmm. Just a, a general thought about that, what you are seeing and how perhaps maybe you're going about your experience to try to overcome that. For sure. Um well, I, I take my experience back to my origins, right? Um, I'm originally from the South Bronx, Bronx, New York City, uh, home of the Yankees. <laughs> um, for everybody that loves them out there, we appreciate it. Uh, we, you know, coming from that environment, I tell people, especially here in Buffalo and Western New York, I'm pretty much the equivalent of your Bailey Kensington, your Broadway Fillmore neighborhoods, you know, underserved, uh, the almost... The forgotten communities, um, you know, New York City, yes, is big, 8 million people. The Bronx alone is 2.8 million, um, but we don't get the same services and the same uh, resources that uh, other communities or affluent communities get. And when we do get it, it's more so as we're targeted, like a targeted population and quotas for organizations and groups. Um, So for me, growing up in New York, growing up as a kid, I saw those adversities of crime. I saw violence. I saw uh, drugs and what that did to not only my community, but, you know, what those things did and hit my home. You know, I've had uh, the good where I had law enforcement. Um, I have family who are um, detectives, NYPD. Um, I have also family and friends that also serve time in Rikers, Mm. you know, and I also have a father-in-law who was a corrections officer in Rikers. So I got to see, you know, both paradigms of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I took the initiative and I really just had this inner self-motivation that a lot of people, you know, tell me about sometimes to my own detriment, but uh, they always say, man, you're so confident in yourself. Like, you, you just don't stop. You keep believing in yourself and you keep going. And uh, that's what led me to go to school, do what I had to do. I played sports, and Wait, I eventually— Did you play ball at, uh, yeah, at Buff State? Uh, no, I didn't get to play oh, ball okay. at Buff State, uh, but I thought I was when I <laughs> initially came up here. I thought I was going to— <laughs> Yeah, I thought I was going to play football. I was like, oh, okay, it's a D3. I could probably just go in as a walk-on and right. do my thing. But um, I went to Buff State. That's what led me here in 2007, uh, undergrad. Um and then I had got into some things um, to my own doing. You know, young kid coming up from New York City. Um, first, what was time it like coming into, coming into in. Buffalo from New York City and, and that Buff State community? It was it was a culture shock. Um, I think for me, you know, Buffalo itself is very different from New York City. Um, the housing, the atmosphere is more of a um, hometown type of feel here. Whereas in New York, you know, it's a big city. You know. Um, but I, I do love the the fact that you know all my friends from Buffalo, everybody here, my family, um, they love the Bills. You know, <laughs> you can't get you can't get away from it. You know, so they have been trying to convert me for several years now. Even when the team wasn't doing too well, to be a Bills fan. So you know, in my mind, I'm I'm a Jets Giants. Okay. You know, I, I rep New York City, but I do support the Buffalo Bills, and I'm happy to see them win. And we're happy to have you along on the wagon. That's for sure. <laughs> as we go through a hopefully a great season here. For hey, sure. uh, let's then uh, talk uh, about when we go uh, uh, when it comes to black 
generational wealth. This is interesting. You, you've looked at the, the situation. What are the things that stand out? What, do you, what are things that people need to understand when it comes to black generational wealth and some of the issues? I think the, the statistic I've seen is the average black household has one-tenth mm. of the uh, retirement income built up or savings built up that the average white household would have. Yeah, and I also... Like an, uh, another alarming statistic was I learned that black population, though maybe 12 percent of the country's population, only owns one percent of the country's wealth. And within the next 20 years, that population will own less than one percent of the country's wealth. To me, it, it just was was a sticking point. And, and to the to the earlier point of me coming to Buffalo, yeah. um, I had to live off campus. Um, so when I lived off campus, I was living on Grant and Bradley. And I was in entrenched in the West Side. And I was like, oh, okay, this is comfortable. I'm familiar with this. I come from the Bronx. This looks, you know, very similar right. to where I come from. And then I started noticing, like, you know, yeah, I'm in the Bronx. Uh, uh, I'm now in Buffalo. But, man, like, these houses are, like, in turmoil. Like, I was living next door to vacant abandoned properties. You know, my apartment essentially was what they considered an old trap house. So they used to sell drugs out of there um, a long time ago. And they thought because now I lived there that, you know, they were still selling drugs. So people would knock on the back of our door, you know, trying to get drugs. And we kind of had to tell them, like, no, we don't. We're wow. college students. We're just here, you know, just to rent and just go to school. So it took some time. But now, you know, if you drive on all along Grand Street, you have now seen that transformation of that community and what that community looks like. Um, and to your point about the generational wealth, you know, you think about all those families and those peoples that originally lived there in the west side of Buffalo, in the east sides of Buffalo, um, even the Fruit Belt part of Buffalo. And you see how now those neighborhoods were, you know, entirely destituted, weren't the areas of, of interest. Nobody wanted to put money or resources into there or even dare live there. And now it's, you know, where to be. You know, people are buying. I'm seeing nothing but new construction. Are you seeing in your real estate? A hundred percent. I mean, I'm constantly driving. I'm constantly, you know, talking to people. I'm constantly helping people in my um, position as a site director. Um, we do uh, down payment. Um, uh, excuse me. We do 2% down payment mortgages with no PMI. We also do... Uh, uh, what you call it, uh, home improvement loans and grants for single-family homeowners and also for multi-use. Uh, so for landlords that invest in um, properties here, specifically in Buffalo, they would qualify for a grant in combination with a loan. Um, and we also do new construction. Let's talk about the Clean, uh, clean Sweeps uh, initiative. Now, you're not involved in it like you were at that time. Correct. Uh, but what is it exactly? Just make sure we understand what we're talking about here. Sure. So the Clean Sweep is a unique public-private partnership. Um, basically, it's headed from the mayor's office, and it just connects all the city departments, county um, agencies, state agencies, federal agencies, along with... Uh, not-for-profits, local not-for-profits, and local businesses to go into the community and provide resources and services, whether it be um, broken into three teams. So there's the beautification and restoration team, you know, cleaning up the vacant houses. Before, when I first started, they were demolishing vacant houses. Right. That has changed now. But um, And as know, a real estate person, you think that's good? Uh, I do. Okay. I do. I all do. Because right. I think that now we're at the point where everything is cleared and now we need to start building. Gotcha. Okay. Right. Um, so then you had that. And then you also had the um, outreach community, outreach teams. 
And then you have the uh, what we call codes in law enforcement. And that was probably to me one of the greatest parts of it is because now you get to have community police officers going into the community, speaking to the residents and working with them. At the same time, you also have um, housing code officials going out there and, um, you know, doing summonses and, and warnings for those that need repairs, specifically, you know, those absentee landlords right. that are out there that do like to take advantage of, you know, renters. And I can speak to that being a renter, you know, coming from Section 8 housing, even when I was in college, I had food stamps while going to school full time at Buffalo State College, you know. But just because I was on government services to get to that next step in my life doesn't mean that I didn't deserve the same good, fair, equitable quality of life like anyone else does. When you look at 16, 15, 14 year old kids, do you think back to the kids that you were growing up with in the South Bronx? Do you think of yourself and you know, what can you say to these kids? For sure. Actually, I spoke to them uh, this summer. We had a uh, shout out to the Yale Academy. Uh, my brother, Lee Anthony Freeman, uh, Buffalo native, uh, also a fraternity brother of mine, Prince Hall Mason, Ionic Lodge number 88. And uh, he... <laughs> You're he, always networking, are you? <laughs> listen, I'm, I'm always working. I'm, yeah. in, I'm in the community. You know, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm really entrenched um, into this work. And this is my heart. This is my passion. And I think that you can always... You know, I told the kids, so what I did was over the summer, I taught them about um, credit, right? I taught them about the basic principles of credit, how to use that, what does that look like for themselves. I taught them about how to create an LLC, and I taught them about real estate. And I'm a big proponent of uh, the three uh, most financially successful people in the country, right, tend to be those who invest in real estate, right, those who invest in stocks and bonds, Right. As we saw in the Great Recession, those 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 groups, those organizations still rose. Right. Mm -hmm. The same thing with the housing market. It took a hit, but it still rose to, you know, incredible new heights now. And then um, those who also own businesses, you know, those three um, groups or people, you can be all of one or you could be two of three. But you got to be in one of those fields because those are the people that get the most tax benefits. Those are the people that actually rise with the tide when the economy comes back. So, you know, for me, you know, going back to the black wealth and what I spoke with with the students, I was teaching them. This is how you build black wealth. This is how you build that passive income or just even have assets in which you own that if anything happens or things hit the fan, you have this for yourself and your family and you could potentially live off of this and pass this down to the next generation and the next generation is what we need to focus on. When you look at kids like that, like you were talking to this summer, I'm sure they were enraptured with the idea of having the possibility of having wealth, but at the same time, there must be pitfalls. What do you see are the pitfalls for for young people? For sure. I mean, speaking to my black and brown community here in Buffalo and to nationwide and even further throughout in the world, worldwide, um, we're not privy to those resources. We're not privy to those conversations. You know, um, our education system really doesn't put an emphasis on teaching uh, kids, even in college, teaching you about credit like what is your FICO score you know simple things like that a budget you know I always start off my credit uh, classes uh, and consultations with do you have a budget okay you don't have a budget all right we need to work on a budget basic simple what's your income what's your expenses 
this is your net operating income. You know, this is this is what you have left over to work with. And then when we have those conversations and we go through those um, exercises, they start to realize like, yeah, I wanted a car, but you know what? This car may be a little bit too much right now. So let me just save up and then I'll eventually get a car when I have three months of savings. So I have, you know, um, three months of my car payment. You know, uh, my rent is paid. I have all my bills in order and I can sustain myself, you know, to my next job or my next uh, position in my career. It uh, sounds like obviously a, a great approach to, to things. At the same time, kids are being marketed to, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, from outside interests who, you know, they don't really care about their budget. They don't really care about um, their generation of wealth. They just care about getting their money from their pockets into their corporate coffers. Is that something that you see as a troubling landscape as well? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think even for adults, not even just children. <laughs> sure, <laughs> trust me. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of us, you know, and it's just the American way, right? What, even America, you know, I can't, I can't tell, you know, the micro uh, how to do things if we're not acknowledging the macro. And the macro is, is that America's in debt. You know, trillions of dollars in debt to other nations, right, that we're supposedly competing against. And it's like, how can you get out of that? Well, you got to be a producer. You got you to gotta stray away from being a consumer and start focusing on being a producer. And I think for us, you know, I like nice things. I like to wear, you, you know. amazing sneakers. Oh, I appreciate it, brother. <laughs> appreciate it. Shout out to Y3, Yohoji Yamamatsu, and shout out to Soho in New York City. We out here. Okay. I'm but, sorry uh, <laughs> but um, you know, I do like nice things, and I did show the kids. I showed the kids that, you know, I'm driving a Tesla. I did show the kids, you know, I, I do have all the, you know, the new Yeezys and stuff like that. But I only have what I have because I could afford it and that's what we got to get into we got to get into the mindset of what is affordability and there's things that I have passed up on because I'm willing to have that delayed gratification you know for me you know having to have food stamps having to you know um grind and go to go to Buff State full-time go travel all the way to the mall because the bus took an hour just to get all the way out to Chictawaga, you know, and I only had but maybe $20 in my pocket for the week to, you know, basically buy any food at that time, you know, outside of the food that I had at my house, you know, it, it put a lot of things in perspective and that adversity, those obstacles really helped refine me and focus me in to say, all right, you need to get the things that you need and then you can, you know, scale up you could start building your um, income and then you can budget and have, you know, maybe 10 percent allocated to things that you want, you know, and preserve your stuff, protect yourself. You know, there's getting things right that you want or uh, getting assets. Then there's protecting those assets. Right. That you want. And then is expanding and building on those assets to try to accumulate more. And I, that's the American way. That's the true American way. We follow the leaders, the, the, the entrepreneurs, those um, business owners, you know, the, the civil rights movement was led by the entrepreneurs and the blacks that, you know, who invested in the community. They had to pay for Martin Luther King and, and all of these civil rights leaders to go on these buses, to travel, to preach the good word. But there was still money involved. You know, we, we still live in a capitalist democracy. And we saw in the 2016 elections and beyond, even currently with Joe Biden, that capitalism is always going to win because how do they pay for these billion dollar now campaigns? Right. It's money. So if we can preserve our money and take our money and use it like seeds, 
right? So the wise farmer is going to plant that seed and give it the nourishment that it needs so that way it can grow. But if if your money is like a seed and you're not planting them and you're not growing them, then what are you doing? Are you eating them? Are you throwing them away? What are you going to do when, you know, there, there, there's a drought? There's no abundance. You got to be able to have some, some self-sustainability. And that's my biggest thing to promote to the community is we need to start focusing on being producers instead of just being consumers. And I think you actually just answered the question right there, but I'll ask it anyway. For this community, for the Buffalo community, you're obviously a, a big picture guy, yet you're working down in the trenches at the same time. Right. What's obstructing that message from the community? Um, definitely the media. You know, we have a lot of, in our community, a lot of negative um, depictions of ourselves. We, we too much associate wealth with material things. Um, and that's why, for me, it's kind of like you got to have the sugar before you give the vinegar. Right. So I, I showed them like, yes, you can have nice things and you can do it with integrity and build and take care of your family. Um, you know, we do have obstructions and I'm proud to say it, you know, from and it's just not local, but just overall too, right? Like governments, you know, our, the government has failed black people consistently. Um, we tend to um, be sold uh, what we call in our neighborhoods the wolf tickets. A wolf ticket. <laughs> A wolf ticket. So basically, you know, it's like crying wolf, you know, but it, it, it doesn't amount to anything. And I think for us, we need to stop trying to put all our eggs in the basket of you know hope and 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 uh government because government can't just do everything by itself you know and i learned that when i worked in city hall like it was great and it was a, a beautiful opportunity and i'm forever thankful because it, it allowed me to start my career and really understand the community and and what i want to do um but i also acknowledged and learned that as much as I was going into these communities that were underserved and putting all the resources and energy into it, I also realized that the community is, is the number one uh, leader for the community to get out, to, to, to rise. So, you know, that's why I'm, I'm really a big proponent on not putting blames to anyone, yet, you know, acknowledging the atrocities and the things that are going on, speaking truth to power, right? And at the same time, going back to my community and saying, hey, we have to do better. We have to invest in ourselves. And investing in ourselves is not just, uh, you know, purchasing the assets. Investing in ourselves starts with, you know, our health, uh, our mental health, our spiritual health, um, you know, making sure that we're taking care of our household. You know, is there love going on within each other? Like, can you see your, your fellow brother in the neighborhood and just say, you know, peace, brother, peace, king. How you doing today? You know, like I want to my shine is your shine. And vice versa, you know, I want to see you win because you winning makes me feel good and I'm winning. So, you know, just being uh, a part of that and working together as a community, I think really is what's going to help take us to the next level. And, you know, you just got to take the time, right? Because I tell the kids specifically, I'm like, y'all on TikTok, y'all on IG, right? But you're looking at sneakers, you're looking at cars, you're looking at clothes, you know, but are you looking at ways to you know, create some wealth for yourself because the job markets are scarce. You know, I remember even myself coming up 21 years old, bachelor's degree, refined. I could come in with a suit and tie, but I'm still not getting the same job opportunities as, you know, 
my white counterparts that come from more African countries. So what did you countries. do? What did you do? I just kept pushing. I just kept pushing. I just kept saying to myself, um, you know, listen, you're going to win. It's going to come. There will be a break for yourself. Um, but you also need to learn that you have to build something on your own. And, you know, when I did get the door, the, the opportunity in the door, right, the blessings from others um, and all the people that had looked out for me, um, I took that opportunity and I ran with it and I said okay now I'm in but this isn't the end all be all because I think this is relatable across the board you know whether white black or or whatever your ethnicity when you're going to college you know you're in that rat race so you're in college thinking I'm gonna get out of school I'm gonna get a good job and everything is gonna be okay well that's not really it right, right. You, you sold you sold a, a wolf ticket <laughs> <Is> <laughs> there that we go what I had when I graduated from Buff State yes you got a you got a wolf degree <laughs> And we close the program today with Francisco Vasquez, the President Emeritus of Child and Family Services. Glad to be here. Tell me about your origin story, because I think it gives us a way to look at racial issues in Western New York through a lens that is different than the typical. I'm actually a transplant uh, to the Buffalo area from uh, from Arizona, actually. Um, I grew up in a very small town, Douglas, Arizona, which is right uh, roughly in the north, southeastern corner of the state of Arizona. Uh, my home was two blocks from the border, uh, from the fence. Um, so I spent, uh, obviously, my, my uh, early years uh, Growing up in 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 that small town, it, we lived uh, in a fairly segregated community. Although the major population there was uh, Latino, uh, there that we were segregated, frankly, in 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 a part of the uh, the town uh, south of uh, of the main uh, downtown area. Um, the I went to a segregated school for the first uh, five years of my life, um, five uh, grades of my life, and uh, uh, didn't uh, inter in interconnect with other uh, with uh, with other uh, whites primarily uh, until uh, grade five. Um, I I like to think about it as having lived in between, uh, mm. in in a sense in between the culture of my roots, uh, the Mexican culture, and uh, the, uh, the culture of whiteness, uh, which was uh, uh, primarily the education system in, in, in Douglas. Um, I recall in grade three uh, being punished on three different occasions. When I say punished, uh, meaning uh, 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 paddled uh, by the principal because I spoke Spanish in the playground. Mm-hmm. Um, the I recall the my first day of, uh, of first grade. Uh, um, my mother was asked to pin a three by five card with my name on it, uh, so that the teacher would know who I was. She wrote down Francisco Vasquez. Um, when we sat down, and the teacher started greeting us, uh, she went student by student, and again we were all Latino children, uh, student by student and flipped the card over and anglicized our names. So I became Frank for a long time in my, in my school years. Um, the reason I raise that is it's, it's, it's living in between, uh, in, in, again, the culture of my, my roots, uh, the Mexican culture, and, and the culture of whiteness. Um, 
and 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 part of part of that uh, journey is really trying to identify who I was. What what is my identity? Am I uh, I present as white because my skin is white, uh, but I I don't uh, identify as white uh, because of my uh, my experience. And so I I talk about being in between. What kind of microaggressions or racism mm-hmm. have you seen while inhabiting that middle ground, maybe mm-hmm. one foot in, in a white world and one foot in the Latino world? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it this way. Uh, the, the, uh, those people from my Mexican roots uh, and my friends, my family members, uh, especially uh, family members outside of my, my, my own family, uh, cousins and uncles and all, uh, I was viewed as a vendido, as a sellout often, mm. uh, because I, I, I pursued the the. Uh, you chased the white the dream. White, the white dream. Uh, the uh, and and so you you're you're in a position of, of 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 being criticized because you're you're chasing the, that dream. Uh, on, on the other hand, my white uh, uh, counterparts would. Uh, would view me as a as a spick, uh, as uh, as somebody who uh, uh, who is uh, different and, and and distinct from them, uh, not accepted necessarily. Again, living in between. Um, so it, it, it again it, it it affected the way that I identified for a long long period of time. Um, initially, I didn't fight the the uh, the the. Uh, Stereotypes? Well, the stereotypes and the attraction to whiteness. I didn't fight it. Uh, later on in, in my years, I, I, I regretted that to a great extent. Uh, um, uh, so I began uh, in my high school years to, to fight to keep my, my proper name. Uh, and even today, people will freely call me Francisco or Frank because they just shortened Either it. one today. Even wow. today. Uh, um, I don't fight it any longer uh, because I, I get it. I understand uh, the the, uh, uh, the the need to to uh, to to interact. I, I I'd rather interact rather than try to fight the 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 uh, uh, the discomfort that I feel sometimes with uh, with being presented in a different way. Let me go back to something sure. you said a little bit earlier, though. You you almost felt reluctant, or at least were criticized yeah. by others. For embracing the white dream. Yes. What What would your alternative have been um, to just embrace your Mexican heritage and then put up with all sorts of incumbent discrimination? Uh, yeah. Which you ended up getting anyway. Yeah. Frankly, that that was the reality, though. I I, I recall a cousin of, of mine who uh, uh, who I visited with. Uh, I I, was, I remember I was a freshman at the University of, of Arizona. And uh, went to visit him, had lunch with him, actually. Um, and he worked for the park system in Tucson. And he, he said to me, uh, you'll be just like the rest of us. You'll drop out and, uh, you know, you'll, you'll, uh, if you can come. I'll help you find a job uh, with the city. Um, I had other thoughts about who I, what I wanted to do and what I wanted to pursue. But that was the... the um, uh, the reaction, the mentality. I think uh, I had uh, uh, uncles who would uh, talk about uh, you should really go 
work as a laborer because that's that's what we do. Um, yet I had mentors who were white uh, who who said, uh, "Here's an opportunity, and and we can help you." So. Again, I, I had I had allies on, uh, on on one side and and detractors on the other, but that began to shift also because I I began to uh, uh, to meet people who who uh, from my Latino side who were also on the same journey I was in and 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 found a common uh, interest in, in in pursuing uh, different directions. And this is almost a rhetorical question because I imagine the the answer is yes, of course, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> um, but tell me a little bit about how universal your story is. I think my story is fairly universal. I, I think that people who I grew up with, uh, who straddled that border of our, our Latino culture and, and the white uh, society, I think many of us struggle with that identity, and, and it never leaves you. Uh, you're always aware of it. You're aware of, of where you fit in and where you don't fit in. You, you're aware of, of, uh, of what you need to do to fit in uh, on both sides. And so when I visit my family and folks and, and, and friends in Arizona, I take on a different persona, and, I, and I'm aware of it. I'm not uncomfortable about it. Does it hurt? Uh, sometimes. Sometimes it, when, when I'm communicating with somebody and, and, and we're, we're, we're having a conversation about an issue, uh, there's an expectation that, that I embrace a perspective or a perspective, perspective or a belief that's uh, rooted in, in our Mexican culture. But I've gone beyond that sometimes and, and have formed different opinions and all. And so it becomes very uncomfortable, and, 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 and there are conflicts that can emerge from that. I also imagine, and if I'm wrong, yeah. please tell me, that you get frustrated sometimes by the singularity of discussions about race. When racial equity is discussed, it's often not including this, this middle ground, these yeah. people like you, mm -hmm. that feel one foot in each world. Yeah. I would never take a position that would be critical of my uh, black uh, brothers and sisters. Uh, but my point is they have a unique uh, uh, history of their, their racial uh, journey, uh, distinct from mine even. But when most of the di dialogue is about black and white, we lose that middle ground, that gap in between. Uh, and there's a lot of distinction in there. There's a lot of nuance in there. Uh, there there's a brown area in there, if you will, where there's a, a, a multitude of perspective, a multitude of belief systems, of, of knowledge, of understanding uh, that is lost when we only have conversations about black and white. Tell me more. What sure. is the big untold story? Uh, we're obviously a news yeah. organization. Yeah. What kind of things should we and the media be looking at in order to broaden that perspective or include those other stories? Part of uh, part of that conversation uh, has to uh, include uh, the the contributions of people in that middle ground, the understandings that people have about society, about religion, about economics about any number of issues that are frankly lost in, 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 in the black and white conversation. But there's a richness there, a richness of, of, of thought, of, of uh, perspective that I think uh, uh, we lose when we, don't, uh, when we don't include them. Fast forward. We started talking about your origin story. Sure. Fast forward to Buffalo and the time when you may have just arrived here, mm -hmm. I imagine, for college? 
Uh, no, actually, my wife is from Buffalo. Did you find Buffalo to be a racist city? I, I remember my first year in Buffalo, I wondered why people were so depressed. A lot of very kind people, a lot of, uh, you know, it's a city of neighbors. I get that. I understood mm. that. I experienced that. But people were, were down in the dumps. Uh, is, and I began to understand why. I began to understand that the economy was, was in, in poor shape. I began to understand that uh, the, the uh, steel plants had closed and a lot of the ramifications of that uh, were lingering. I began to understand also how, how it was a zero-sum uh, um, uh, proposition where if, if somebody if one side excelled the other it was at the expense of the other and that's what I saw in in Buffalo as, as a result so so when we talk about race that's what I saw I saw uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, people of color uh, pursuing uh, opportunity but pe- being viewed as uh, that it was at the expense of, 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 of whites in our community. So there was this tension that I, that I sensed uh, uh, at, at the very beginning. I, I became interested in understanding that further. That's why I began to engage in, in, in other community uh, uh, conversations about, uh, about race. I think of all the times, uh, and this is probably universal, yeah. people will go to a, a wake and uh, see an old relative. Yeah. Oh, gee, it's, it's sad that we have to meet under these circumstances. Similarly, yeah. talk about the sadness or maybe even the hope that springs from the top shooting because the community could perhaps now focus more on racial issues. Yeah. Um, more recently, I was asked to uh, serve on the uh, a, a national, uh, it's called a Compassion Fund. It's a singular uh, repository of funds that can be that would be used to to help people who were victims of the shooting. I heard a lot of stories of the terror that people experienced. Uh, all of us are in mourning. All of us still can't grasp what really happened there. I remember hearing the news and my jaw dropping and then having a family member call and and, and say, uh, oh, it's going to be a hot summer in Buffalo. And and again, I it was code for the racial strife, an assumption that it was about the blacks rather than than a white supremacist who came and murdered yeah. our brothers and sisters uh, uh, in, in that community. That isn't lost in, 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 in how I view this. Uh, it, it, it is a, a horrible tragedy. Lives will be affected by this forever endeavor. And, and we need to be mindful that, that our community is affected in, in a very profound way. I cannot go into that community and profess to know an answer to the issues. I have to be in a position to listen and, and, and to help uh, uh, that community uh, uh, find its way. But I, we, uh, we need to be supportive of that. I'm hopeful that the conversations that we will have in, 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 in the wake of, of, of the shootings will be different, will be much more accepting of, of that other perspective, of that other view. But I also am a realist and, 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 and understand that hearts and minds don't just change just because of things like this. Um, I was just going to take you there. Uh, I've had other people on this program, uh, most notably I think of Jomo Okono, who was involved in Juneteenth. Uh, and, and he was talking about how last year the vision of Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck wasn't just in the media. It was in people's living rooms. They were seeing it on yeah. TV. It was a moment that he said 
kind of crystallized the nation. But things didn't change. We still have a top shooting. The roots of our of our racial issues are systemic, and we're all victims, if you will, of our of our own doing, of our own uh, of the systems that we create. We, as 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 human agents, create these uh, social structures. We create uh, the the laws that govern our lives. We create uh, the the responses to issues uh, through religion, through through uh, through economy, through any number of social structures. Um, and when we get sufficiently tired of the implications of that, we begin to activate to change that. So uh, I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful in that sense, but I'm also wary that we're not done yet. There's a lot more that has to change systemically in order for us to affect our, our lives in a positive way. In large part, I think you, you've identified a little bit of the dichotomy too. Yeah. There is the attitudinal shift. Yeah. Blacks and whites and Hispanics and everybody need to understand each other more yeah. attitudinally. Yeah. But because they haven't, out of that also springs all sorts of systemic things. Uh, we can talk about redlining. We can talk about disinvestment. Yeah. We can talk yeah. about segregation. Is addressing the attitudinal stuff enough to change the systemic, systemic stuff? I think emotionally I want to, I want to attack the, the attitudes uh, realistically. Um, I... I think there is there is greater success, greater value in 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 changing systems, um, because I think hearts and I I think hearts and minds change when we become accustomed to a a, a different a different structure. Um, we become more accepting of it because we 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 have to behave that way. We create the, the, those those structures to 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 govern our our lives. And, and, and for, for very appropriate reasons. So I think that changing systems actually results in the changing of hearts and minds eventually. It takes a long time, though. Um, That's interesting because I think the conventional wisdom would be the other way around. Right. Change the attitudinal stuff right. and the systems will follow. Right. But you're saying the systemic change would, would have obviously a, a bigger impact. Uh, I believe so. Uh, the... the uh, uh, the, the idea that that uh, the 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 hearts and minds of people that uh, if I go talk to somebody about uh, um, uh, about race and 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 how we ought to to uh, to be more accepting and to behave differently, um, and 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 that person views that as a a, a zero sum proposition, meaning if 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 my black brothers and sisters gain, then I, as a white person, lose. Have lost. Right. Have lost. Uh, I don't know how you change the minds, the hearts, and minds of of, of that person. Um, but but if 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 we view it as a systems issue, uh, then uh, everybody there, there's a commonality there. All of us want to succeed. All of us want to work. All of us want to be productive. All of us want to have a, a, a say in, in, in our lives. Um, and if we can create structures that, that help define how that is done, then I think hearts and minds change. The other part of that is that it, we, we, we want to call people into the conversation. We don't want to call them out. And so when you, when, when you, when you approach it from a, a, um, 
a hearts and minds approach, inevitably you're going to say these are the people that are that are uh, the racists, and these are the people that are that are not. Well, you've just called them out, and and I, I want to talk to that racist, but I want to talk to that racist in, in the context of of the structures, how how people, how all of us may benefit from from the way we we engage with the structures that we we establish. That's Francisco Vasquez. You can subscribe to Buffalo What's Next on your favorite podcast platform, hear it on demand at WBFO.org, or just listen each weekday morning at 10 with a rebroadcast each night at 9. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening.